welcome to Let's Talk MedTech, the premier podcast for the medical device and diagnostic industry. I'm Amanda Peterson, news editor at MDDI, and I'm pleased to introduce our guests today, Leo Petrosian and Eric Bluthart from Neurolutions. Leo is the company's CEO, and Eric is co-founder and chief scientific officer. Hi, Leo. Hi, Eric. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Uh, So the technology uh, that we're talking about that the company has developed, that uh, Ipsy Hand, uh, is really um, amazing from what I've, uh, just the little bit about it that I have seen so far. So I really want to make sure that our audience understands what a major advancement this is for stroke rehabilitation. And I wondered, uh, maybe, uh, Leo, you might want to start with this one, um, but I was just hoping you could talk a little bit about the scope of the problem that the technology addresses and why it's such a breakthrough. And of course, Eric, if you have something to jump in and add, um, please feel free to do that as well. Absolutely, Amanda. Thank you. Uh, I'll, I'll go through it at a high level, and then Eric can jump in with the, the deep technical on the discovery and the innovation as, as it began with, with him at WashU. So every year in the United States, approximately 800,000 people suffer from a stroke. Of that 800,000 people that have a stroke, somewhere around, we estimate around 300,000-ish are left with a disability post-stroke. That disability often takes a a combination of four forms, where there's a cognitive impairment, a speech impairment, um, and upper extremity dysfunction, and a lower extremity dysfunction. Very often, people associate stroke disability with uh, uh, an inability to move one side of their body. After somebody's suffered a stroke, there's typically uh, an amount of rehabilitation that's performed that can be effective uh, and or spontaneous recovery that occurs in the first 90 days. So somebody has a stroke the day afterwards, they can't move their arm or they can't move their leg. Um, and we, we perform rehab with them for the first uh, uh, 90 days and there's some amount of recovery. However, after the 90th day, it's very often, uh, it's, it's collectively believed, I should say, that wherever you are on day 91 approximately or day 180, um, that's where you're going to be for the rest of your life. There's very little improvement in stroke rehabilitation for individuals once they enter what we describe as the chronic phase of recovery. So if you can imagine a 42-year-old had a stroke six months ago, can't move their right arm, they have to live with the fact that they're never going to be able to move their right arm ever again. Um, and so that's the scope of the problem that we focus on at Neurolutions. We estimate that there's somewhere around one, somewhere around one and a half million people living with uh, upper extremity dysfunction post-stroke uh, in the chronic phase. And we think that that should be clinically uh, unacceptable. And so Eric and his team at WashU developed a... Uh, incredibly innovative breakthrough technology that allowed us to develop the Ipsy hand, which can allow for uh, facilitating motor recovery in stroke patients, specifically in the chronic phase. These are people that lost hope years ago, and the Ipsy hand can give them the ability to restore upper extremity function. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, again, when we really, you know, there's really two things about it, I think that make it really super exciting. I think one is, as Leo has articulated quite well, 
is that there's this large population with motor disability that now has a new opportunity to improve clinically. And that I think is a really big deal. And then the second part is the method by which we do it. You know, this is really the first clinical brain computer interface for rehabilitation where we're really tapping in to brain signals to allow for functional remodeling to allow people to regain that function. And, and because I think what's really interesting is when, when I, we think about like, you know, where did this come from and how did we do this? It really starts with an observation that we had, you know, nearly 15 years ago where again, we, we work, I'm again, just my day job, I'm a, a practicing neurosurgeon and we you know, interact with people who have, you know, a motor deficit, you know, because of stroke or because of brain tumors or injuries. And even though they can't move it, move a limb, for instance, they can think about moving it. They can imagine moving it. And that really led to this genesis of this idea of where do those signals live? Where do we, how do we, how do we pick up the, the, the physiology, the brain's physiology for the, that, those residual movement intentions, even though they can't execute it. And so that led us to really kind of this deep path of understanding how kind of the brain encodes information and such that that some of those residual brain signals are on the uninjured side of the brain. And if we can tap into that by wearing a, a kind of a non-invasive headset that's picking up those brain signals, that's picking up those specific brain signals associated with that, what we call same-sided movement intention or ipsilateral movement intention, that we can then partner that with kind of the movement of a robotic exoskeleton. And by tying those two things together, the intention to move with you know, by picking up those brain signals with the actual execu execution of movement of the hand, that that leads to, again, the, the scientific term is a Hebbian model, or kind of layman terms are things that fire together, wire together. That as uh, kind of people are generating those you know movement signals, they're getting the, the actual movement of the hand, and they're getting the sensory feedback, that that's creating a scenario that better enables their brain to remodel and rewire to recover function. And that and over you know, a series of you know you know scientific and clinical publications where we basically showed we could pick up that you know ipsilateral motor physiology. We could show that stroke patients could use that ipsilateral motor physiology to control the device with their thoughts, and then they, uh, that when they used that over time, they recovered clinically significant function, and that was really the foundation that led to kind of the the, the form factor that was created with Neurolutions. What were the most important considerations um, during the design and, uh, and engineering process? Um, what was most important for you in terms of um, develop the development phase and you know making sure that the form factor was what you wanted it to be? Yeah, sure. So again, I can take that or I'm, I also know Leo can. But I think you know one of the fundamental kind of aspects of this, it's really, and some of this is going to sound obvious, but it's really important to emphasize. It's fundamentally about the, the patient. And, and I think this is actually one of the additional elements that I think really makes this, you know, breakthrough is that so often, you know, prior to kind of the Ipsy hand, brain computer interface uh, research and demonstrations of use were in these very controlled, rarefied environments like the laboratory or, you know, really, you know, high tech, you know, clinical environments. And one of the things that we focused on was that we wanted to cre create a brain computer interface that people use at home. 
And so I think and that that's really just one offshoot of this, but it's really making sure that this is a system that is for stroke patients that is that can be used in their environment and can be used by stroke patients in in the way it's kind of engaged and deployed. So for instance, the system is, you know, the the patient can don and doff the system if even if they have one hand that does not work. They can engage with kind of the way that the system is, you know, configured and used uh, um, with that motor paresis. And I think and that that took a lot of thinking for instance, you know, kind of what kind of headset should we be using? You know, historically, where we started was with these kind of classic research headsets that where you, you had to inject, you know, gel, you know, in, in into the electrode so that basically it got good contact. Well, we, we had to reconfigure that to dry electrodes. So again, you don't have to have a family member who's injecting gel into the electrodes or kind of the way that the, the, the uh, handset is applied to the hand and that this is something that one person could do one-handed. It's a, really a multitude of, of you know, technical details, but it's really centered on that a, a, a stroke patient could use this in the environment that they're comfortable with. Yeah. If, if, Eric, if I may chime in for a second, I, I think it'd be really helpful for the audience to get a visualization of like what oh. the system model is, like what it actually looks like. Yeah. Um, Great point. Do you want to take that, Leo? Yeah. Thank you, Eric. So as Eric was describing, these ipsilateral signals exist. And um, what what the Ipsy hand does is we place an EEG, dry EEG headset on an individual's head. And we ask them to visualize opening and closing their hand. And using proprietary algorithms, we can simultaneously observe and detect the intent to articulate the disabled limb. So we say, think about opening your hand, and we detect it with this EEG, and, and our software picks up the ability to open and close, the, their desire to open and close their hand. Simultaneously, we take the disabled limb, and we put it into a robotic glove. And when they think about opening their hand, they obviously can't. The robot opens the hand for them. Then they think about closing the hand, and the robot closes the hand for them. And the, the individual spends one hour per day, five days a week for 12 weeks, performing the, the, these therapy regimens where they think and concentrate about moving their disabled limb. And the, the action is completed by the, robot it's, uh, by the robot. And after 12 weeks of therapy, the person's actual ability to move their hand is uh, partially restored through the therapeutic process of the system, as Eric was describing. So we, we contact the patient in three separate ways. We have a headset, which Eric was describing, uh, which is a dry EEG headset. We have a robotic orthosis. You could think of this as a robotic glove that can uh, open and close their hand for them. And we have a, a tablet computer that runs our software that helps uh, coach them through the process of clearing their mind and visualizing and thinking about opening their hand and clearing their mind, visualizing and thinking about closing their hand. So each one of the devices, the headset, the tablet, and the orthosis all provide their own unique challenges, especially as, again, to follow up on Eric's point, you take into account the fact that this is a, a person who has uh, functioned in one limb only, uh, typically. And so they have to be able to be set up, donned, used, configured, serviced, put away with one hand. And so that introduced its own um, special considerations. Yeah, that's a very good point. And it's interesting that you uh, mentioned that because we've been talking a lot. I've been talking a lot with um, other 
uh, engineering uh, type folks about how complex the healthcare system has become and why it's so important to have simplicity in design. And especially with um, all of these devices like this one that's intended to be used by a layperson in their home um, with caregivers that aren't necessarily tech savvy. So, um, so I really appreciate you uh, emphasizing the importance of that in the design process. Yeah, Amanda, it, it's really fascinating. If you if you look back at medical devices from 30, 40 years ago, um, they were not attractive products. There was no user experience optimization. There was no de design consideration in them. But today in 2021, uh, we are a direct, uh, like almost a, a direct consumer product company. And so the consumers have become uh, familiarized and they expect a certain quality, a certain um, beauty of their user experience and simplicity of their user experience that was not expected years and years ago. It used to be that you just provide the clinical utility and that's good enough. Today, you have to provide a, a the clinical utility and a wonderful user experience. Absolutely. And, and I would even chime in a little bit from the, again, I'm the neuroscience nerd here, is that uh, that the more that this can be aesthetically pleasing, engaging, there's a neuroscience there. Like they're more likely to use it. They're more engaged. And that attention will, will, will also contribute to bearing fruit for kind of how well they, they benefit from this. Absolutely. That's a very good point. Are you digging this conversation? We know you are. But perhaps you want to hear a little bit more about the medical device and diagnostics industry. Well, you can do that by simply going to mddionline.com. That's mddionline.com. The medical device and diagnostic industry is a resource exclusively for original equipment manufacturers of medical devices and in vitro diagnostic products. The goal of MDDI is to help industry professionals develop, design, and manufacture medical products that comply with complex and demanding regulations and market requirements. It's also a great place to find all of our content. You can find articles about the industry. You can find these podcasts. Yes, we even host these podcasts so you can catch up on hearing more of my lovely voice. I'm just kidding, just kidding. Uh, but you can definitely hear our podcast uh, from the team and you can check out some of our content. And it's just a great place to connect with the industry and see what's happening in medical devices and diagnostics. And now back to our conversation. Uh, Leo, I wanted to pivot a little bit to talking about the regulatory process. And um, I understand that you guys uh, went through the de novo process and, and um, did receive breakthrough device designation. So what was uh, your experience with those processes like working with FDA? I will say that uh, I will begin with something that one of my my role model mentor entrepreneurs, who's a chairman of our board at, at Neurolutions, Fred Kosravi says, uh, Fred, has, Fred reiterates that the reason that American medical devices are revered worldwide is not because we're more innovative than the rest of the world, but because of the standard that the FDA holds us to. So we had a wonderful interaction and experience working with the FDA. And the FDA 
though it was a very high bar for us to climb, as Eric pointed out, as the first brain-computer interface um, therapeutic rehab product through FDA category-defining tool, it was a high bar, but we had a great experience with the FDA. They, they, were, they were communicative, predictable, um, clear and concise in their requests, and we were able to uh, work together to fulfill the requirements so that we could uh, climb over this bar with them. We, we applied for and were granted breakthrough device designation in the middle of last year, uh, and we followed up with our, our full submission filing soon thereafter. Uh, Neurolutions has always been a quiet company, uh, so, so we didn't broadcast that we were doing any of this. <laughs> the world didn't find out about this system until FDA announced it with their right. press release. Um, so yeah, I'll just say that we were in FDA for about, I want, I want to say uh, the better part of nine months, uh, calendar months. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a very interactive process, especially taking into account that all this took place over COVID, right. which right. has kind of been a little bit of a distraction for the entire healthcare industry, <laughs> let alone the FDA. Of course. Eric, anything to add there? Yeah, no, I think I, I would echo uh, Leo's comments that it was, it was a very engaging, positive experience. And I think, you know, what, what I came away from that was, again, we were doing a lot of work, you know, to, uh, to really kind of getting to, to where we are today. And, and I think one thing that was very clear, and I think it was clear with the culture of the FDA and, and also our own culture at Neurolutions is that, you know, we are here to do the right thing for patients. And I think in really building that rapport where basically we were aligned that, you know, I, you know, that we have to make sure this is absolutely right and that we're going to deliver on what we're going to say we're going to do. And I think that really building that rapport and level of you know communication with the FDA made us enable to have a really good, honest, healthy, courageous you know interaction throughout this process. So that when we you know uh, when they had questions you know we could you know address them, and when when we had questions that they were very responsive. So I think that again it's just this you know make when I think there's a really deep understanding on both sides that you know that that it's about doing the right thing for patients that I think that it really uh, enabled us to be very productive, you know, in moving things forward. Great. Yeah. I've heard a lot of people talk of emphasize the, um, you know, that it's really got to be a two way street with FDA. You know, you, you have to um, cooperate with them just as much as you expect them to cooperate with you. And, and that improves the overall process. So. Um, and, and on that note, do either of you have any advice or lessons learned from a regulatory standpoint that you might want to share with our audience, um, any, anyone in the audience that might be um, getting ready to go through um, an FDA process like, uh, like the Breakthrough Device Designation or de novo? I, I, I would chime in with one uh, piece of advice is that uh, try to empathize with your reviewer and put yourself in their shoes and ask yourself how high of a regulatory bar would you judge yourself by? And don't count on them to tell you where that bar is, but you need to be able to empathize from their perspective and assess the, the, the risk benefit analysis of your technology and hold yourself up to that same bar, if not a higher bar. If you set the bar high and you exceed your own expectations, then the FDA will, will, will not likely ask for more. They'll, they will work with you enthusiastically and happily that you and be happy about the fact that you put such a high bar on yourself. So some companies I, I'm aware of in the past have tried to go in with to FDA 
trying to get as low of a bar as possible and try to argue about moving that bar. But in, in my personal experience, it's been set the bar high yourself and they, they will respect that and you will get through successfully. Great, great advice. Yeah, and I would echo that. I think that, uh, again, seeing them as partners for uh, for moving something forward and not as an, in any way and as an impediment, that like these are people who are here to help you kind of, you know, uh, deliver on a promise. Great. Well, thank you both so much for your insights. Is there anything that I didn't ask specifically about that either of you wanted to add regarding the um, R&D development process or the regulatory phase? Uh, I I would just chime in that partner with your customers, partner with your patients as early and as often as you can in as many ways as you can. Uh, very often in med tech, we, we go heads down and we focus and we work really, really hard and we forget to look up and, and talk to our, our stakeholder groups as often as we should. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that I think is really, really important, especially as, as user experience and design becomes more and more important in building a successful medical technology company. Eric? Yeah, and I would say kind of uh, building on that is that the, the the teams, especially for, I think, neurotechnology that are required to kind of successfully execute, you know, it really is broad and deep, meaning, you know, ranging from when I think about the, all the people that were involved in making this happen, it's really quite extraordinary, ranging from, you know, certainly we've got the engineers, the neuroscientists, the neurologists, the occupational therapists, the physical therapists, you know, and then even and the halo of experts and network that they have to the regulatory experts to kind of people in neurolutions and the, you know and it, it's it's really you know, it, it's really a village of expertise that makes this happen and and it really comes down to I think healthy relationships. Absolutely excellent points, both of you. 